Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This was a terrible time to get rid of a show helmed by one of the most important pro-Palestinian voices on the network and on any mainstream TV network in the country. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a fascinating show for you this week. I spoke with Mark Lamont Hill, the professor, political commentator, and host of Upfront, a show on Al Jazeera English. I wanted to speak with Mark about the war between Israel and Hamas and the media's coverage of it. The conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians has been something that Mark has focused on for years. He was a contributor at CNN. Before that, he was even at Fox News. Now he's at Al Jazeera, which is a Qatari-funded network. And I wanted to ask him about what things are like at Al Jazeera, about his firing from CNN back in 2018 when he was let go for using a pro-Palestinian slogan that some say is anti-Semitic. So Mark and I spoke about all that. We spoke about the ongoing war, the media's coverage of it, as well as how the media covers Israel and Palestine more broadly. Here it is. I was interested in speaking with you this week because you've been speaking out about Israel and Palestine for years. Can you, to start, speak to that? Give us a sense of why this is an issue that you focused on in your career. Well, you know, I am a media commentator and a journalist, but I'm also a scholar. And as a scholar, uh, the political and geographic Middle East has been uh, an area of inquiry uh, for me. Uh, early in my career, I focused only on domestic stuff, uh, but I've been a professor for two decades now. And in the second half of my uh, career so far, I have focused a great deal on issues related to Israel and Palestine. I've done a great deal of research uh, in East Jerusalem as well as throughout uh, historic Palestine. Uh, I've looked at different uh, Jewish groups, such as the Beit Israel, the, the Ethiopian Jewish community in Tel Aviv and in other parts of Israel. I've studied the Afro-Palestinian community. And so my interest as a scholar made me look to this issue as something that I cared about. And then uh, following the killing of uh, Mike Brown in Ferguson that summer of 2014, when we saw Ferguson summer, we also saw, saw Operation Protective Edge in Gaza. We saw a 51-day war in Gaza prosecuted by the Israeli government. And there were so many interesting connections between what Black people were doing here in the United States and what uh, Palestinians were doing both in the West Bank and in Gaza that I became even more interested in the relationships between the two. And so I started to travel back and forth more. I started to do uh, more direct research uh, in the region. Uh, and I became a more vocal uh, opponent of the current regime, uh, which has subjected Palestinians to really a second-class uh, status throughout the region. You know, it's uh, I'm always interested to talk to people who have actually traveled to the region because they they tend to have pretty strong feelings about what's going on there, particularly if they've seen what's happening in Gaza and, and in the West Bank. What can you tell us about what you have seen when you've gone on those trips? Yeah, um, during my time there, um, you know, it, I have seen how deplorable the conditions are in some areas. I've seen how normalized uh, 
a, a, a system of inequality can be, how deeply entrenched it can become. Um, you know, I've spent time at checkpoints with Palestinians. I've sat and watched Palestinians be subjected to scrutiny uh, and surveillance and detention. Um, I've looked at, in a day-to-day -day sort of living situation, how there are different sets of rules for people who are uh, Israeli citizens versus those who are not. And among Israeli citizens, I've seen different uh, experiences and different ways of living life uh, for people who are Arab citizens of Israel versus Jewish citizens of Israel versus Druze uh, citizens of Israel. Um, I've seen so much uh, in the region that has made it very clear to me that this is unsustainable long term, that if we want to have peace in the region, we have to find a way to get justice uh, for everybody. What do you, when you're looking at this current conflict, like the latest chapter in it, what do you think about the media coverage that we've seen of it so far? Well, you know, I, I think since the 1970s, we've seen a, a steady uh, improvement in the media coverage of this issue. I mean, if you look at someone like Peter Jennings, uh, who has talked openly about what it was like for him to be in, in the Middle East, specifically in the Levant, uh, more specifically in Lebanon, I, I believe. Uh, people were afraid to even say the word Palestinian or even Arab at times. Uh, and now we see a more robust array of, uh, of representations. Mainstream corporate media still defaults, I think, with um, Israel being correct and the Palestinians being incorrect. Um, but what we've seen, I would say at least since 2014 uh, with Operation Protective Edge, again, is uh, a more complicated picture being painted, partly because I think people's politics are shifting and people's sentiments are shifting. But also there's this nifty camera phone and there's live streaming and there's social media. And so corporate media cameras aren't the only cameras who are forced to look at the world through the lens and through the eyes of other people at the same time. Uh, this time around in particular, I initially thought, oh no, there's going to be a step backwards. I was worried that because of the sheer uh, brutality of the Hamas attack on October 7th, 2023, uh, that people would lose sympathy for the plight of Palestinians who have been uh, persistently bombarded and occupied and exploited and criminalized and murdered, et cetera, uh, for, for more than a century at, at different levels. Um, and so on October 8th, I was thinking, wow, you know, the world's sympathy and the world's attention is targeted toward those civilians who were killed and held hostage, as they should be. Um, I worried that because of our commitment to that tragedy, we would lose sight of everything that happened on October 6th, and we wouldn't have a reasonable vision for what October 8th could look like. But over the next week, we saw the Israeli response become increasingly uh, disproportionate with what happened. Again, what happened was awful, but that doesn't mean we can blow up hospitals. It doesn't mean that we can blow up schools. It doesn't mean that we can be indiscriminate in our uh, response as a state. And as one Israeli official said, we're, we're, we're less worried about accuracy than sort of impact. Uh, you can't be more interested in impact than accuracy according to international law. And so as more and more Israeli, uh, as, as more and more Palestinians died, as more and more uh, Palestinian children died, 
you know, we're talking about 40% of the number of, of people killed were children in a region where 50% of the children are, are, are under the age of 18. I'm talking about in the Gaza Strip in particular. As more and more of that happened, people started to say, you know, October 7th was inexcusable. We also can't let that be an excuse to be uh, relentless in our pursuit of Hamas to such an extent that we kill everybody else and then we destroy everybody else. And so I I'm starting to see the media representations become a little more balanced. You look at MSNBC, uh, you look at CNN, you look, I'll, I'll just say those two for now, and you see a more balanced uh, approach. It's still, it, it ain't 50-50. It might be 70-30. It might even be 80-20, but you know what? It's better than what right. it used to be. Uh, and uh, the last thing I'd say about that is, you know, we have international media outlets. You know, I'm proud to work at Al Jazeera. Uh, I'm mm. excited by what I see at BBC. I, I see other places that are telling the story in a much more rich and nuanced way. It's interesting, you know, th that you mentioned the iPhones and their what they've been able to do for conflicts like this. It's very similar to the, the Michael Brown um, and other police shootings we've had in America. There are a lot of parallels there. I would also say, you know, I was uh, reading this interview with Richie Torres, who's a very pro-Israel congressman oh, yeah. from New York. And he was saying that, you know, one of the things that's changed, one of the reasons why uh, America's, is, uh, the American public is being so tough on Israel right now is because there's camera phones showing what's happening in Gaza. You mentioned CNN there. I, I did want to ask you about this. You know, your, your, your focus on the conflict landed you in some hot water in 2018 when you were fired by CNN for comments you'd made before the United Nations. You called for a free Palestine from river to the sea. Now, it's become pretty widely accepted, I would say, in the United States that th this idea that that phrase is, is de facto anti-Semitic. Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian in Congress, was censored for using it, censured for using it. And I had Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, uh, on this podcast last week, and he was applauding Elon Musk, who runs X, formerly Twitter, for, for declaring that that phrase is, is quote unquote genocidal. Why do you think that that phrase, which you used and which got you fired from CNN, why do you think that's become controversial? What do you think's behind that? It's hard for me to say what's behind people's, uh, you know, commitments to calling that phrase anti-Semitic or genocidal, I think it's best to ask them. I mean, I'd be curious to know Jonathan Greenblatt's analysis right. of that or Musk's analysis of that, why they decided that despite people saying, this isn't what we mean by it, right. um, that, that we're still committed to saying that's what it means. I mean, imagine, uh, to use your uh, sort of reference of Black Lives Matter, uh, imagine it, when white people say, you know, Black Lives Matter offends me. It makes me feel like you don't care about white people. It, it's anti-white. Black Lives Matter is anti-white. And we decide that, well, if white people feel that way, then black people, we just can't say Black Lives Matter anymore, right? Because white people feel like right. it erases them. We wouldn't accept that because that would be unreasonable. Um, Jewish people have every reason to be afraid of uh, Judenrein. Right uh, of of uh, an attempt or an outcome where uh, Jews are eliminated from a territory, because for thousands of years Jewish people have been subjected to genocide, to pogroms, to persecution. So I understand very much uh, the commitment to saying, as a Jewish person, never again. And I stand with Jewish people. I stand with Jewish people saying never again. We can never allow another uh, Holocaust. We can never allow genocide against Jews. We can never allow 
uh, anti-Semitism to prevail or be normalized. I'm with you a thousand percent on that, Jonathan Greenblatt. I'm with you a thousand percent on that, uh, Elon Musk. I'll put Musk in quotes because his choices seem more cynical than, than ethical. Uh, hmm. But I say on everyone who says that, my issue is, one, the use of the term precedes the formation of Hamas, which is not that old of an organization, right? You know, Hamas is, 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 goes back to the first intifada. Right. Uh, and I also can't ignore the fact that the Likud party in 1977, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, said that all of Eretz Israel, all of mm -hmm. historic Palestine, all of 1948 established Israel, as well as the West Bank, as well as Gaza, what they would call Judea and Samaria, they say that all of that is the Jewish people's land from the river to the sea, right? That's what the Likud Charter says. And people could say, well, you can't hold them to the Likud Party Charter of 1977. Well, you, you hold Hamas to the chart, their charter, right? Even though they've edited their charter, you still say, well, that's what they said. And that's what Likud said. So when Likud said that the Zionist project was from the river to the sea, did that mean they were calling for the genocide of Palestinians? Because there's a much greater argument historically, there's a much greater empirical case to be made that Israel has attempted to remove Palestinians from the land than there is the Palestinians have removed Israelis from the land. If we're talking about 1948, we're talking about what's happening right now in Gaza. So I don't accept that. Um, everyone says river to the sea, liberals, progressives, radicals, conservatives, Israelis, Palestinians, Jews, Christians, Muslims. River to the sea simply speaks to the territorial boundaries. And so when I say river to the sea, or when I said river to the sea, I was saying, look, it's not enough to fight for Palestinian citizens of Israel, because a lot of Israelis will say, well, what are you talking about? Arabs have full rights in Israel. Even if I were to concede that point, which I don't, what about the West Bank? And then, right. But it's not enough to just, we need the West Bank, the illegal occupation of the West Bank to end. It's the longest um, military occupation in, in modern history. If we say that as the end, okay, yeah, but what about the people in Gaza? They've been under siege since 2006. What about those who are trapped in the diaspora and are in exile and need to return home? What about them? So for me, River to the Sea is saying this entire region needs justice and peace, not just little pieces and slices and pockets. Now, did you uh, hear from anyone at CNN? Did any hosts reach out and support after you were you were fired by CNN? Support? Uh, no. More like, woo, that was that was messed up, bro. <laughs> really? really yeah. More like that, yeah. I got a lot of whispers of you're not wrong, but I'm not saying anything. Right. Yeah, I can imagine people like the, the climate at the time. People were a little bit scared to speak out publicly about something like that. Um, That's the climate. Now, of the uh, yeah. I, I'm, most people, when you get fired at TV, uh, from what I've seen, you know, on every network I've ever seen this at, whenever I talk to people, interview people, they say, "Look, I got fired." And everybody thought it was wrong, but everybody's afraid of it. There's like one. There's like one morning anchor job, right? There's three morning anchor jobs on making right. TV, right? Just right no one's sacrificing their job for somebody else, and so it, no matter what network you're at, people just don't speak up. Yeah, yeah, they're worried enough about watching the ratings if they slip for a week, getting fired themselves. Um, right now, uh, another cable news network that you mentioned, MSNBC, 
they have been mm. accused of silencing some some pro-Palestinian voices on air. This week, the network announced that it was canceling Mehdi Hassan's show. He was a tough critic of Israel. What did you yeah. make of that? Do you, do you have any sense of why his show was canceled? Did did Do you think that that is uh, a, a crackdown of sorts on pro-Palestinian voices on air? Did, did it alarm you at all? It alarmed me. Um, I, I don't know the reason why MSNBC canceled the show. I don't traffic in rumors or guesses, right? I don't want to send out allegations that aren't true. Here's what I know for sure. I know that at best, this was a terrible time to get rid of a show helmed by one of the most important pro-Palestinian voices on the network and on any mainstream TV network in the country and in the West even. Mm. So let's say it's just budgetary. Let's say it's just about money. It's a bad time to prioritize money over uh, a principled analysis. I can't imagine mm. in the middle of George Floyd or Mike Brown being killed that MSNBC would have let go of Al Sharpton. Right. Right? Like, it would just look so bad that they couldn't do it. So I'm saying, even if I give MSNBC the benefit of the doubt and say it's just about money and ratings, it's still a terrible look. And the cynical part of that as well is people are going to think he got fired or that he didn't get fired, excuse me. People are going to think that the show was canceled because right. he was pro-Palestine. So it still has the impact of making people afraid to be pro-Palestinian. And it still has the impact of having opponents of Palestinian freedom and self-determination say, look, they got rid of another one. We win again. And so right. even Do if- Do you feel like critics of, of Israel are, are censored in American media? Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, mm. There are, if you look at the polls and you see what Americans think about Israel's response to this, or you look at the polls and you think about uh, Americans' general feelings toward Palestinian rights and freedom, and then you align that with, or, or you lay that next to what we see in here on cable news represented, they're not even close. Similarly, I would say if you were to line up all Americans' views on a lot of issues, Americans are pretty conservative on some things. Cable news doesn't always reflect that, right? Like, right. like there's a way that cable news does not represent the polls or the sentiments of everyday people. Now, um, there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think pro-Palestinian voices are simply not mainstream. I'll give you another example. Being a third-party voice is not mainstream, right? So, so I'm a Green Party advocate. Right. I'm a Green Party member. I don't get to go on TV and talk about being in a Green Party. You're either Democrat or you're Republican. So they get silenced. I'm, I'm, making, I'm adding these to the list for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which I'm not suggesting that there's some specific conspiracy against pro-Palestinian folk, because that often is used to reinforce anti-Semitic tropes and narratives about like Jewish control of media and power. And that's not what I'm saying at all. A thousand percent, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there are dominant mainstream positions on guns, on, on, on reproductive rights, on, there was a time when it was drugs and gay marriage too, recreational drugs and gay marriage too, right? And Israel's on that list. And there are simply things that are dominant positions that people have in mainstream politics that are overrepresented on cable news. And, and again, pro-Israel positions is, is just one of them. Right. 
Now, uh, after October 7th, I believe I have this right, you, you interviewed a Hamas spokesman on your Al Jazeera show. And in a, in a subsequent interview, you were defending having them on air. And you said that it, there, there's a broader project of framing Hamas, not as a government organization, but as a terrorist organization. Now, many people who, who looked at what Hamas did on October 7th, the wanton targeting of civilians for murder, the brutal and deliberate killing of children and babies, the rape of women as a tool of war, and they concluded that was clearly an act of terror. What did you think of that? And, and did that change your view of the distinction here uh, when you're looking at Hamas as whether it should be considered a government organization or a terrorist group, which is obviously important for considerations when we're doing news coverage like this? Right. So, so I think that there are multiple things happening at the same time. And I think we have to be sophisticated enough to analyze that. First of all, you know, the organizations like the New York Post misrepresented what I said. I wasn't taking a position on whether or not Hamas is a terrorist organization, in my opinion or not. I wasn't saying that they don't meet the conditions of a terrorist organization and therefore shouldn't be called one. That wasn't my point. My point is that, it, particularly in the international context, news outlets typically don't refer to people as terrorist organizations. We call them right. what they BBC are. BBC has long avoided doing that. That's my point, right? Somehow, American conservative media in particular ignored that. It made it seem as if I was putting my own... Uh, sentiments on top of the analysis. And I wasn't. I was saying, as someone who, who works for an international media organization, my position, Mark Lamont Hill's position, is that uh, there are multiple ways of representing these organizations. And since the consensus internationally is that we don't use the term global, uh, we don't use the term uh, uh, terrorist, that I, I, I see some value in that. So there's that's the journalistic piece of it. Then there's the other piece of it. You know, we have a responsibility to educate the public. We have responsibility to present facts. Do I happen to personally believe what happened on October 7th was an act of terrorism? Of course. Right? And I think it's important to present what happened. I think it's obvious to the, to the viewer that that's an act of terrorism. I don't think we have to make a hard sell on that. But we also have a responsibility to give people the context of Hamas. And if we only just keep saying Hamas are terrorists and Hamas and ISIS are the same thing, they're not the same thing. ISIS is a global caliphate that was never democratically elected. ISIS has, the, has a commitment to taking over the entire world and transforming it into an Islamic state. ISIS is, is, doesn't have the same ideology, political aspirations, scope, range, or anything as Hamas. So when organizations say, oh, they're the same thing, not only is that imprecise, it's dangerous. So my point is simply to say, yeah, we need to talk about Hamas and what they did, sure. But we also have to understand that Hamas is the ruling party of Gaza. We have to understand that Hamas is a political organization. We also have to understand that the Hamas that was elected in 2006 uh, with 44% of the vote, they won by plurality, uh, is one group. The unity government was undermined by multiple powers, including Israel and the United States, which led for the armed wing of Hamas to become a dominant force in the region. And so we have to also- Right, because there were elections Hamas and then- and then there was a there was the, the violent coup in 2007 and then they suspended all elections after that exactly and so hamas isn't it's not like some terrorist organization just took over the gaza strip or that a terrorist organization ran for office i mean that's just an uncomplicated unnuanced inaccurate uh description of what happened and so again for me it's not about um defending or throwing away hamas when i talk about how the media covers this. It's about saying, let's present them 
accurately and honestly, the warts and all will be very clear. <laughs> you know, the, the, the problems of Hamas will be very clear. No one is, is unclear about what Hamas did on October 7th. I've yet to be the person that was like, yo, that made sense. Or, yo, that was awesome. Yo, that was acceptable. Right. Yo, that was okay. I heard any of that. We all understand that it's morally indefensible. The question right. is, what else is going on at the same time? And we can have both conversations. Right. But w when looking at the, the pro-Palestinian movement that we've seen grown in the United States over the last two months, a lot of it has been, as you say, uh, people standing up for, for you know, freedom and dignity and uh, self-determination of the Palestinian people. But you know, yeah. a lot of people have been alarmed by a number of people who seem to be genuinely expressing support for Hamas. We've seen that at, at some of these protests or denying the atrocities that they committed on October 7th, you said on social media, et cetera. Is, is that something that alarms you? No, I'm, I'm not alarmed because one, social media doesn't necessarily comprise, uh, social media doesn't necessarily reflect what the masses on, in real life are actually saying, doing, or feeling, or experiencing. Um, mm -hmm. And media representations of protest are often uh, political in nature. I mean, if I were to watch Fox News only, I mean, if I were to only watch Fox News, I would think that the new Black Panther Party were a dominant group in Black America that represented our politics and our leadership, when in fact, there was right. like 12 in the new Black Panther Party. So there's a tendency to seize I, on the extremes in, in cable news. We obsess with the extremes because that's what's sexy. That's right. what sells. Right. Um, but yeah. I, go, I go to these rallies and I go to these protests and I don't see all these pro Hamas uh, uh, voices and signs and all that stuff. Now, I do think that there is a, a more nuanced position on Hamas that we have to have um, that we simply don't make time or space for on cable news. I think that's true. Um, but there's a big gap between saying, hey, let's talk about this with international law in mind. Let's talk about this in in, in, in the context of a 100 year war on the Palestinian people, to quote the great uh, historian Rashid Khalidi. Um, there's a difference between that and saying, hey, Hamas is our squad. We love them. We want them to represent us. I think that those two things get conflated very easily and cynically uh, by by many news outlets. So uh, Al Jazeera has uh, faced some criticism during this conflict, given it's funded by uh, Qatar and Qatar is alleged to have ties to Hamas. Do you see that as an issue for Al Jazeera's credibility or independence? Has that ever come up as an issue for you as a host there? No, um, the, the Qatari government doesn't influence my news, my coverage. I've never spoken to anyone. I don't even speak to the upper administration about this. And to be clear, Qatar uh, provides humanitarian and educational support uh, to the Gaza Strip. That funding that is received by Gaza is has been approved by the Israeli government. The Israeli government, in fact, wants Qatar to provide that that those resources in the way that it does to prevent it from going into the hands of terrorist organizations for 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 domestic and international terror. So any any critique that people have of Qatar's relationship to funding the Gaza Strip uh, should be taken up with the Israeli government because Israel says this is the right way to do it. My last question, Biden has seen his support plummet among younger voters over his handling of the war. What do you yeah. make of that and what do you think it means for 2024? I think it's an index of a deeper and broader problem that uh, Biden and the Democratic Party have. 
I don't think young people are going to ultimately make their voting decisions based on uh, Gaza, particularly not in in, mm. in eleven months. But I do think their right. disappointment with Biden's issue is reflective of a broader disappointment that they have with Biden and a broader lack of uh, energy that Biden has brought to the to his base or been able to sustain among his base. You know, when you look at Gavin Newsom on TikTok today or on uh, uh, you know, any of the social media platforms, you see people excited to watch him kick DeSantis's butt. And on the other hand, you have Biden, who just doesn't inspire any kind of hope or excitement. Um, and I think that's the bigger problem that Biden has is an energy gap. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think one of the great things about the current media moment that I'm excited about um, mm. is that people get to see me on Al Jazeera and I get to ask accountability level questions to people around the world about this issue and other issues. Um, I get to be on the griot every single day, raising domestic issues around black people uh, and what we're dealing with on questions like, is the Biden administration living up to expectations? And I also have a YouTube channel that I, I hope people can uh, subscribe to. It's Mark Lamont Hill official, uh, the at sign Mark Lamont Hill official in there. I go beyond just the media stuff and I try to offer an analysis, I offer education i offer deep breakdowns of what's going on in the world and there it's a space almost like beyond the fourth wall that allows us to go deeper than news and media representations allow us to because everybody's worried about fitting into a five minute uh tv block or they're worried about uh fitting into a, a one-hour format or they're worried about making advertisers happy and on youtube i don't have to worry about those things mark lamont hill thanks so much for coming on the interview i really appreciate it my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And check out coverage of my conversation with Mark Lamont Hill on Mediaite.com. <laughs>